So good evening, everyone. My name is Arne Westad. I'm going to be the chair for the lecture today by Professor Timothy Snyder, who is the Philippe Roman Professor in History and International Affairs here at LSE, a very well-known writer and historian. And let me say this again, Tim, it is a real pleasure for us uh, to have you here as the Philippe Roman Professor for this year. Now, it could be said that this is the lecture that a lot of people had been waiting for. Now, Tim opened last term with two fantastic lectures on much of the work that he is doing now. In this lecture, he's going, at least in part, to look towards some of the main points that he made in a book that came out three years ago called Bloodlands. So the title for today's lecture is The Origins of Mass Killing, The Bloodlands Hypothesis. And this is a set of issues that Tim has worked on throughout his career, and it ended up in a book that was very much discussed. It's one of the key works of history that has appeared over the last decade, not least in terms of how widely it has been discussed, not just among experts within the field, but in a much broader sense. And the reason for that is that it deals with a set of topics that are truly important, not just for the era that it covers, but for our understanding of all of 20th century international history. The starting point is this, that in the middle of the 20th century, there were two European state projects, Nazi Germany and Stalin's Soviet Union, that managed between them to kill at least 12 million civilians in peacetime and in in war. And the term coined in the book's title, Bloodlands, deals with this thesis, it encapsulates this thesis. The bloodlands uh, are the stretch of territory from the Baltic to the Black Sea, where Europe's most murderous regimes did their most murderous work. The bloodlands were caught between two terrible projects, Adolf Hitler's ideas of racial supremacy and Eastern expansion, and on the other hand, the Stalinist desire to remake society on a broad scale according to the communist template. And this, in both cases, uh, meant shooting, starving, and in the German case, gassing those who didn't fit in to those projects. To me, this book and the thesis that Tim is going to discuss today is not about idle comparison. It's certainly not about measuring degrees of evil. We, We cannot do that. To me, Tim's book is the best kind of history that I know of, that which tells the story of the voiceless and the forgotten, those people who were the victims for these two projects. It is, for an historian, some of the most important things that you can deal with to try to understand a set of human catastrophes, not just in terms of how they can be explained, but hopefully also what they can teach us for avoiding similar kind of cataclysms in the future. So with that, Tim, it's a great pleasure to introduce you for your third lecture in this series. In the spring 
1933, a Ukrainian man dug his own grave. In what circumstances do you dig your own grave? Why would you dig your own grave? In some sense, the calculation is clear. By early 1933, by the time this man picked up a shovel and began to work the still hard earth, a couple of million people had already starved to death in his homeland, in Soviet Ukraine, as a result of a deliberate campaign of starvation organized from Moscow. That's part of the answer, I think. The other part of the answer has to do with human dignity. You see, if you were one of those thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people who starved to death in Soviet Ukraine in 1932 or 1933, your body would be found in a field by the roadside. It would be picked up, thrown into the back of a horse-drawn cart, where it would be buried along with tens perhaps hundreds of other people collected that day in a place where if any of your family did survive, they would be unable to find you. So I think the other reason why this man dug his own grave had to do with a sense of his own dignity, a sense that he would like later to be found, as indeed he was. In April of 1940, a Polish officer was keeping a diary very typical thing to be doing in the time and the place. Most of the Polish officer corps were reserve officers. In the 1920s and 1930s in independent Poland, everyone with a higher education or every male with a higher education was a reserve officer. And in time of war, war began, of course, in 1939, they were all called up. So in 1940, what was still, of course, an age of letters, this Polish officer was keeping a diary. In the last entry of his diary, the second to last entry of his diary, he writes, they asked for my wedding ring, which I, and then three points, three, three periods, it trails off, ellipsis. What's happening there? He, like thousands of other Polish officers in the time and place, had been taken prisoner by the Red Army. Uh, then taken to special concentration camps by the Soviet secret state police, the NKVD. He had a feeling that when he was questioned, and he was right, that when he was questioned, he would be asked where his wedding ring was. He had a feeling that he was about to be executed. He was right. So he wanted to hide his wedding ring. He wanted to make sure his executioners wouldn't wouldn't find it. He must have had the thought as he was writing that sentence, if I record what I've done with my wedding ring, they might find it. So he trails off. And that's the last we know of the wedding ring, but not the last we know of him, because his diary was later found. In September of 1942, in the town of Koval, in what's now western Ukraine, in what at the time was part of German-occupied southeastern Poland, a young girl left a message for her mother. It was an unusual sort of message, In September of 1942, in Kovel, the remains of the Jewish community had been gathered, forced, inside the synagogue, closed by a bar from the outside. And by September of 1942, events had proceeded far enough that everyone, every Jew, everyone else, 
knew what was going to happen next. By then, well over a million and a half Jews had been shot in the occupied Soviet Union, and everyone knew what, what awaited them. So what did people do? Using what was to hand, shards of pottery, bits of stone, glass, occasionally a pen, uh, people left messages, Hebrew, Yiddish, Polish, on the walls of the synagogue. This girl, who was there with two of her sisters, wrote to her mother, We are so sorry that you can't be with us. It seems like a strange sentiment, doesn't it, in the circumstances? But it reveals something very human, indeed something very normal, about the Holocaust, about the events that we now call the Holocaust. People didn't want to be alone. They wanted to be with their families. The message ends, we kiss you over and over. The tragedy of this subject is that these are three of 14 million stories. Over the course of 12 years, in a certain time and place, something like 14 million children, women, and men were deliberately killed as a matter of policy, either by Nazi Germany or by the Soviet Union. I would stress that all of this killing happened in a place, in a place that we can define, between the Baltic Sea to the north, to the Black Sea to the south, between Berlin in the west, Moscow to the east, roughly today's Baltic states, Belarus, Ukraine, much of today's Poland. In this place, 14 million people were deliberately killed as a matter of policy. Now, this place is not a state, and what I'm going to be describing to you is not the history of a state. This place is not a carefully demarcated history of the homeland of a nation. And what I'm going to be describing to you is not the history of a nation, nor is it even an empire. It is a zone which is defined above all, or I am defining it as the zone where so many people were killed over a short period of time. There is no other zone like this in all of European history. Now, the zone is special for a couple of reasons. I've already stressed one of them, the one I'm using as a definition. It is here that so many people were killed. 14 million is a very large number. That alone should command our attention. But it's interesting in a couple of other ways as well. This is also precisely the zone where both Soviet power and Nazi power were present in the 1930s and the 1940s. This is worth stressing. This is worth being specific about. The vast majority of the Soviet Union was never touched by German power. The Germans never intended to occupy more than 10% of the Soviet Union. They never occupied more than 5% of it. The vast majority of the lands touched by Soviet power were never touched by the Germans. Likewise, much of the the German Empire in the Second World War, the Low Countries, France, Belgium, most of Germany itself, and so on, was never touched by Soviet power. If you consider, in other words, the zone of German power and Soviet power together, you're looking at a zone which extends literally from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean, right? From Normandy to Vladivostok, most of the land surface of the largest landmass on the planet. But the area in which these two regimes coincided is much, much smaller. 
And yet, it's in this area where they coincided that the vast majority of the killing took place. In all of this Eurasian space, from France to Siberia, the Germans and the, and the Soviets deliberately killed about 17 million people. Of that 17 million, 14 million were killed in this relatively compact area. This seems also to me to be of interest. The third way to think about this space, indeed the third way to define this space, and the interesting thing is that all three definitions overlap almost perfectly if you draw them on a map. The third definition is this is where the Holocaust Holocaust took place, here and nowhere else. This is where the German policy to murder the Jews of Europe took place. The tremendous majority of Jews who were killed in the Holocaust lived their whole lives in this zone, and those who did not were brought here to die. That seems to me to be also worthy of interest. These three facts together seem to be worthy of interest, and I'm going to consider why these connections might be interesting as we proceed. Now, let's begin, though, with a question, a question, you know, as historians would say about historiography. If everything that I've said to you thus far is true, and indeed everything I've said to you thus far is just a matter of looking at maps and making calculations, everything I've said so far is just arithmetic and geography, there's nothing remotely controversial about it. If everything I've said thus far is true, then we have before us the worst man-made catastrophe, at least in European history, perhaps in history as, as such. And yet, we don't see this as a historical event. We don't see this as a historical moment. We don't see this as a subject of history. Why not? How could that be? How could we miss this? How could we not notice it? How could we look aside or askance or away? I think <clears throat> the basic part of the answer is that we have stories that touch on these events, but they're separate stories, right? So we do have national histories. We have a Polish national history, for example, which would certainly bring to us the tragedy of the Katyn Forest, to which I alluded before, where Polish officers were executed. We certainly have histories of the Soviet Union, which include aspects of Soviet terror. We certainly have histories of the Holocaust. The problem is that these three histories are opposed to each other in various ways. Now, if I've got you thinking about it, I'm sure many of you have read many books from one, two, or all three of these fields. Isn't it strange, when we reflect upon it, that people writing about these events don't mention that the events they're describing happen in exactly the same place as the other events, right? How many books about the Holocaust? Zero make clear that the zone where the Holocaust happened is the same zone where most of the Soviet killing happened? How many explications or descriptions of national tragedy, be they Ukrainian or Polish or Lithuanian, make clear that these national tragedies also happened where the Holocaust happened, and so on? Very, very few, of course, is the answer. So history itself, as we have it, as we have divided, as we're used to reading it, takes these events away from each other. In order for us not to notice that they happen in the same place, we have to not notice place at all, which is what we do. But of course, the problem goes deeper than this. It's not just a matter of parallel lines. It's not just a matter of, of, of national history going along this way, Soviet history here, the history of the Holocaust here, onward to infinity. It's worse than that. You can't push the lines together. The stories are magnetically opposed, so to speak, 
to each other. If you try to push them together, they resist, as I've had occasion to learn over the years. Um, The national histories are each opposed to one another, a Ukrainian national history of victimhood and a Polish national history of victimhood can't simply be integrated because very often the Ukrainian villains are, 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 are the heroes. Um, the Ukrainian villains in a Polish story are the Ukrainian heroes in the Ukrainian story, and so on and so forth. Um, the, the same goes for Soviet history and German history. Uh, it's very hard to put the two of them together, and I think the reason for this is ultimately a deeply political one. Since the French Revolution, we've had this habit of mind, which I don't expect you to get over this evening, um, but I'll suggest this as a moment to start. We have the habit of mind of thinking of politics in terms of right and left. We use a kind of analogy from geometry. This is the left, and this is the right. And once we're thinking geometrically, it's easy for us to believe that these two things never come into contact with each other. The Soviets are on the left, the Germans, the Nazis are on the right. Once we've arranged it that way, once we think of them in in terms of a kind of geometry of ideology, in terms of their beliefs and where their beliefs place them in a mental map, we then don't have to think about their presence on an actual map, which is what I'm proposing that we do. Okay. So how then might we go about something like this? How then might we try to correct these sorts of problems? How might we build up a historical map which actually embraces the policies, embraces the suffering, embraces all the killing? Let me begin negatively by, by, by the things I try to avoid. I try to avoid the standard secular metaphysics that dominate uh, these discussions, that shape these discussions. What do I mean by that? Metaphysics is a big word. What do I mean by metaphysics? I mean three things in particular. The first thing that I mean is that I try very hard to avoid exceptionalism, which is harder than it sounds. Much history is based upon the idea that it's legitimate to write just about the Irish, or just about the English, or just about the Poles, or just about the Jews, or chiefly about the Irish, chiefly about the English, chiefly about the Poles, chiefly about the Jews, to treat the story of their emotional state, to treat the story of their rise and fall as the story. Right? If you think about the history books that you've read, probably many of them take that form. Um, I, on the contrary, am trying very hard, as, as Arne has already stressed, to begin from the assumption that everyone was a human being, that everyone who lived on this territory should be the subject of equal methodological and moral interest from the observer and from, and from the chronicler. Again, that pro- must seem very simple to you, but it's not that simple, I don't think, in the execution The second thing that I try to do is avoid dialectics. Okay, you're thinking another difficult word, another difficult problem. What are these dialectics? How could there be dialectics? Dialectics perform a very strong function in the way these histories are told by allowing us not to see certain things. One dialectic, uh, to start with the obvious case, is the Soviet one. In the Soviet dialectic, the story goes something like this. Sure, Soviet policy killed hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people in the 1930s. But, that's the thesis, here comes the antithesis, but the Red Army liberated Europe and won the Second World War. The the reasoning, if you can call it that, 
is that somehow all of that suffering in the 1930s is justified by or even caused the liberation of Europe. Now, you only have to think about that for just a moment to see that it doesn't really make any sense. Stalin purging the officer corps in 1938 did not actually help the Red Army to win the Second World War. Um, But there's a deeper problem than that. The deeper problem is this. We are here in 2014. Twelve years from now, in 2026, many unknowable things will happen, right? Whatever they are, we can't now say that they're going to take their meaning from from, from today, right? We can't relate periods, at least if we're historians and not, you know, some kind of very special time-traveling metaphysical dreamer. We can't justify things that are going to happen in 2026 on the basis of what's happening now or vice versa. We wouldn't even think of doing that. And yet we have no problem saying 1945 makes 1933 all right. I'm beginning from the position that 1945 does not make 1933 all right. That if we want to understand 1933, we have to study the factors, the interests, the emotions that were in play in 1933. The second kind of dialectic, which I try very hard to avoid, um, is a right-wing German position associated uh, with, uh, with the scholar Ernst Nolte. Its idea is that the two systems, the Nazi and the, and the Soviet, were in some kind of fatal relationship one with the other, that each was each other's fulfillment, that each learned from the other, each taught the other to progress towards a certain common totalitarian destination. I don't think this is correct as well. As I'll, as I'll describe later, the two systems do interact, but they are different systems. The ways in which they interact is a specific empirical question, We can't allow ourselves to say the Nazis did something because that was part of Soviet history or the Soviets did something because that was part of Nazi history. There are two different histories which overlie at some places and don't overlay other places. Now, this is me being the very boring Anglo-Saxon that I am, right? That's an empirical argument or it's an empiricist argument. The two systems are there but they do not have a fatal dialectical relationship. We can't, we can't substitute historical investigation with a kind of dance back and forth. The third dialectic, the one which is most popular today, and you may recognize it in one form or another, is the idea that Eastern Europe is really complicated. Right? You're already recognizing it. It's very messy. There are a lot of peoples there who we didn't learn about in our Western Civ classes, which began in Greece and somehow went through Italy and France and Germany and Britain without ever somehow touching Eastern Europe. There are a lot of peoples there where history seems to be very entangled and bloody, and we would just prefer not to know about it. Why don't we just say, goes this dialectic, that, okay, the Germans and the Soviets were both there, but, and the Nazis certainly did some bad things, but then the Soviets came and that kind of canceled it all out. Why don't we just start from there? Why don't we start fresh? Now, that view that the two systems sort of canceled each other out and let's do political science um, instead of history um, or journalism or something, that that view, different people laughed when I said political science and journalism, I noticed. I assume the political scientists laughed at political science and the journalists at journalists. Um, But that view that the two cancel each other out, um, the, 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 the icon of that, is the notion of the Red Army liberating Auschwitz. How many of you have been forced to consider that stereotype, the Red Army liberating Auschwitz, right? That's the visual notion that the, Red, that the Soviets came in and in effect undid the evil that the Germans had done. Now, as an image, it doesn't make any sense. 
The people who, the, the soldiers of the Red Army didn't know what they were liberating. The fact that they were liberating Auschwitz didn't stop them from trying to rape survivors, for example. Um, Auschwitz itself became part of the German Empire as a result of an agreement between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. If the Red Army had wanted to liberate Auschwitz, it shouldn't have waited for seven weeks on the Vistula River while the last Jews of Wuj were deported to Auschwitz to be gassed, and so on and so on and so on. It doesn't make sense as an image, but it's a powerful image. What this story tells us, this story of cancellation, this dialectic of cancellation, is that one plus one is zero. The Germans were there, but then the Soviets came in and made order. Let's just start clean. In fact, and you all know this, one plus one is two. What we have in Eastern Europe is the accumulation of Nazi power and Soviet power. And all of our intuitions, once we frame it that way, will tell us that that's going to be worse than just one or the other. One plus one is two. Another metaphysic that I'm trying very hard to avoid is that of sanctity. In particular, this has to do with the Holocaust. There's a strong tendency to believe that because the Holocaust was worse than other policies, or because it had to do with race, or for one reason or another, it doesn't belong in history. It belongs somewhere else. It belongs in memory. It belongs in commemoration. But it doesn't belong in history. Both personally and as a historian, I think this is exactly wrong. If the Holocaust is not in history, it won't be in memory for very long, nor in commemoration. Moreover, I think it's very important, if we wish to take the Jews who die and the Jews who live seriously, that we see them as real human beings, subject to the same historical forces and processes as everyone else. The next method that I pursue here, um, and again, this will seem very simple when I say it, is that I'm, I'm undertaking a history of mass killing. The phenomenon we're concerned with is the deliberate mass killing of 14 million children, women, and men. And that's what I'm studying. As opposed to, for example, studying the camps, which is a related but a very different subject. Most people who went into a concentration camp, be it Soviet or German, also came out. The camps were horrible institutions, but the camps were not the same things as starvation zones. They were not the same things as shooting pits, and they were not the same things as death facilities, which is what a place like Treblinka, for example, is properly called. The camps are not even a prelude to killing. The vast majority of people who were killed never saw a camp. The vast majority of Jews who were killed never saw a camp. So the history that focuses on the camps is focusing on a certain terrible institution, but it's actually avoiding the vast majority of the killing. I'm focusing on killing by whatever method. Starvation, which is the most important, then shooting, which is next, and then gas. Now, this focus on place, which is the part of the method that Arna already stressed, so I won't stress it again, allows us to see certain things. It allows us to see the victims, but it also allows us to see the regimes, not just in Berlin and Moscow, but in the place where they were at their most murderous. It also gives us access to sources, not just the sources from the regimes themselves, but from the sources of the many people who were subject to their policies, of which we have a bounty. Okay, now... If I focused on place, if I focused on territory, does that mean that I'm going to insist on some kind of territorial determinism? Does that mean that I'm going to argue that this killing somehow arose necessarily from the place where it happened? Am I going to claim that there's some kind of fatal geopolitics of this region? No, not quite like that. In fact, it seems to me that 
if we want to take ideas seriously, and we're all interested in these ideas, right? If we want to take ideas seriously, if we want to take Nazi ideology and Stalinist ideology seriously, we have to start from place. In other words, if we want to understand how ideology can actually lead to killing, we have to have a sense of territory. Because, of course, the ideas on their own don't march through history and kill, right? The ideas have to have purchase in something. So what I try to do in the book is to bring ideology in place together in certain ways so that ideology can help us actually explain events. What do I mean? Well, an obvious point, which you all know, is that ideology has to be incorporated by organs of power, right? Marxism alone does not kill. If so, my first lecture would have been a total bloodbath, right? Marxism... Some of you might have thought it was, (laughs) in which case I ask for your tactful silence. Um, uh, Marxism has to be incorporated. Even Marxism in power doesn't automatically kill, obviously, right? Red Vienna didn't kill a soul. It extended lots of lives. Um, It has to be incorporated within Leninist institutions. Likewise, anti-Semitism does not kill, at least on a large scale, by on its own. It has to be incorporated within a certain kind of regime. And even that regime, the Nazi regime, did not kill Jews without war. A couple of hundred, which is not very much, right? Without war, the Nazi regime couldn't kill. This question of place is also important for the, 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 the still controversial, ever controversial issue of collaboration. When we say that someone is a collaborator, we have to ask, with what? Because the only regime with which you can collaborate is the one that happens to be governing the place where you happen to live. So the question of place and the question of regime comes before the question of collaboration for almost everybody. The second thing that you notice when you pursue the history in this way is the way that ideology, in fact, the surprising way that ideology deals with time. So from the Soviet point of view, from Stalin's point of view, the revolution was in the past, From the point of view of the 1930s and the 1940s, the revolution was in the past. The revolution was the revolution of 1917. Um, The revolution was a first great advance. There was another revolution around 1930 into collectivization and terror. These revolutions are in the past. By the 1940s, the revolution in the Soviet Union is what has to be protected. The homeland of socialism has to be protected. For the Nazis, interestingly enough, it's exactly the opposite, which is one of the reasons why I caution against right and left and all of that. For the Nazis, the revolution is in the future. It's in the future. Everything which happens between 1933 and I think it's fair to say 1941 is preparation. The Nazis are preparing an SS. They're preparing a camp system. They're preparing for a war which will allow them to achieve their goals. Basically, all of Nazi terror, the episodes I'm going to talk about and the episodes I'm not, happen as a result of a war which takes place beyond the borders of pre-war Nazi Germany. Now, the implications of this different idea of time are really important and interesting and surprising. It means, for example, that the Soviet Union killed almost entirely when the Soviet Union was at peace. It killed fewer people when it was at war. It killed almost entirely on its own territory, admittedly a very vast territory. The Nazi system, by contrast, killed almost entirely during war, and killed almost entirely beyond its own pre-war borders, right? Um, Now, the point of my book, of course, is that when I say inside the Soviet Union, and when I say beyond the borders of Nazi Germany, I mean very much the same place, right? I mean a place that was touched by both. Now, 
ideology, in order to make sense, again, has to include economic aspirations. We can't make a firm distinction between economics and ideology, much as we would like to, right? Here I will slip back into the Marxist mode and say that every triumphant economic ideology claims not to be an ideology, right? But all forms of economics and all forms of ideology have a kind of inherent connection. The Soviets, um, to be sure, have an ideology of class struggle. But the ideology of class struggle is meant to serve a project of modernization. Hitler, of course... Um, uh, and some of you are probably guilty of buying Mein Kampf on, on Kindle. It's been a bestseller on Kindle lately. I'm just looking for guilty expressions now for a minute. Um, ha- expresses a clear ideology of racial struggle, right? There's no doubt about that. But this racial struggle is supposed to take place chiefly in vast colonies in Eastern Europe, beyond Germany for the time being, where Germany is going to build a kind of amazing agrarian empire. So these are different ideologies, right? Class struggle, racial struggle. Uh, there are even different views of what, of what progress would mean. From the Nazi point of view, progress means we take our industrial, slightly decadent German Middle European homeland and we add to it, we complement it with a vast agrarian colony in Eastern Europe, thereby achieving autarky and balance. From the Soviet point of view, we have a backward economy, um, we have a backward population. We're backward in every respect. What we need to do is modernize. We need to become industrial. We need to become that thing that Germany already is. So the ideologies are different. The views of the future are opposing. But what's interesting and what's crucial is that the territory overlaps. For both Stalin and Hitler, indeed for the chief ideologists of both regimes, not just the leaders, the crucial place for both of these transformations was one country, and that country was Ukraine. Ukraine was going to be the country that allowed both the Nazis and the Soviets to break out of what they saw as the false capitalist liberal version of history. How is this possible? This is the last thing I want to say about about ideology. Ideology, when you think it through this way, along with power, along with time, along with economics, ideology fixes a certain part of territory. It fixes a certain part of territory in world history. What do I mean? I mean, of course it's right that the Nazis and the Soviets thought globally. Of course it's right that from their own point of view, their ideologies were universal. Of course it's right that Hitler imagined that there was a planetary domination of Jews. In that sense, he was thinking about the world all the time. And of course it's right that Stalin was thinking of a world revolution, Of course it's true that Soviet history was only supposed to be the prelude to the progress of human history. Of course, in that sense, Stalin was always thinking about the entire world, the entire globe. He also was a planetary thinker. But in practice, when the ideology is meant to be implemented, the territory that comes first is Ukraine. And the territory that comes first to both is Ukraine. From the Soviet point of view, Ukraine, the fertile territory of Ukraine, is going to be the land that can be exploited to create excess capital with which the Soviet Union can be modernized. From the German point of view, the Nazi point of view, Ukraine is Lebensraum. Ukraine is that place which is going to allow Germans to to, to kill, starve, displace, settle, and then become autarkic, to break the rules, the present rules of economics, to become autarkic, to become to to return to their own racial essence. So you can have different ideologies 
You can have different temporalities, different plans for development, and still end up in the same place. The overlap between these two regimes has to do with this territory. Now, if you follow me that far, if you just follow this kind of abstract argument about the relationship between ideology and place, you can anticipate already what's going to happen between 1933 and 1945. 1933, of course, being the year when Hitler comes to power and when Stalin finally consolidates power. 1945 being the end of a world war, which in Europe was chiefly a Soviet-German war. You can anticipate, at least roughly, what's going to happen in those 12 years. If you know all of this, you can guess, and you'll be right, of course, that the two regimes are going to chiefly kill in the lands between. You will also guess that they will interact in the lands between, right, since they're both concerned with them. And finally, you can, you, can have a, you can have a guess about what's going to happen to particular places between Moscow and Berlin. You can see where they can cooperate. Where can they cooperate? They can cooperate in a place that I've barely mentioned thus far. They can cooperate over the fate of independent Poland. Independent Poland is the only sovereign state that lies between, directly between Moscow and Berlin. It's the only major sovereign creation, which is in the way of both of these ideologies, both of these notions of development, both of these visions of history. And Poland is where they can, in fact, cooperate and do. In 1939, the two of them become military allies and jointly invade the country. You can also have a good guess about where they cannot agree. They cannot possibly agree about Ukraine. Ukraine is one territory that's crucial to both ideologies, to both visions of development, to both visions of future. So Ukraine is that place over which they must fight and over which they do fight. The German-Soviet War, which is the essence of the Second World War, is chiefly a war for control of Ukraine. And therefore, it's not surprising that between 1933 and 1945, more people will be killed in Ukraine than in any other country in the world. It will be the most dangerous place to be between 1933 and 1945. You can also imagine, if you, if you think a little bit further, um, what the most dangerous place during the Second World War itself will be. Where's the most dangerous place in the Second World War? I'll give you a hint, it's not Paris. The most, the most dangerous place in the Second World War is Belarus, by far. Right? And that shouldn't be surprising. I mean, in Belarus, um, something like half the population is moved. Something like a quarter of the population is killed. No other country remotely approaches that total. Right? Why is that? For a very simple reason. Belarus lies on the invasion route, whether you're going from Berlin to Moscow or Moscow back to Berlin. Also, Belarus happens to be a fine territory for partisan warfare. So between 1941 and 1945, during the Soviet-German War, Belarus is the most dangerous place to be. The Holocaust will happen there. Partisan and anti-partisan campaigns will happen there, and Soviet prisoners of war will be starved there in horrifying numbers. The final thing that you might guess or begin to ask about or begin to think is, what does this all mean for the Jews? And of course, this is decisive for the Jews. In order for the Holocaust to happen, very simple point, German power must extend to where the Jews live. Where do the Jews live? Primarily in this territory, in Poland, Ukraine, Lithuania, Belarus, and Western Russia. German power extends into this region not because the Jews live there. It extends into this region because of a German colonial project, which encounters a Soviet colonial project. So for the Holocaust to happen, German power has to be where Jews are. 
It's a very simple point, but it's worth stressing because when we think of the Holocaust, we think of German history. And that's because historians of the Holocaust write about German history. And that's because they know German. Um, but in fact, 98% of the victims of the Holocaust right, did not know German, had no contact with German culture, had nothing to do with Germany, whose first encounter with Germany was usually with a member of an Einsatzgruppen or with a German policeman or something of the sort. Right? So the huge majority of the victims of the Holocaust don't have anything to do with Germany. Um, they're from precisely these lands. And so any history of the Holocaust has to get you from Germany into these lands. For the Holocaust to happen, there has to be that, and there has to be Hitler's notion that the greatest threat to the world, to Germany, to superior races, is, 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 is Jewish control. You have to have both the ideology and you have to, have to have the place. So for the Holocaust, at the very least, what this kind of argument supplies is the place. This also suggests three periods. So if we think about this history, now over the 12 years that I've defined, from 1933 to 1945, you can think of three periods. There's a period between 1933 and 1938 when the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany are at peace. The Soviets then carry out most of the killing, roughly a million in episodes of terror, roughly three million by starvation. German killing in this period is essentially negligible. It's counted in the hundreds. In 1938, um, just to mention the camps, since they're more familiar, there are about 20,000 people, a little bit less, in German camps. There are about a million people in Soviet camps. As of 1938, the Soviets have killed something like a thousand times more Jews in the 19th, not even mentioning anyone else, just Jews, than, than Nazi Germany has, as of 1938. So in the first period, we're dealing with a period where the Soviets are, are, the, are the mass murderers par excellence. The second period, 1939 to 1941, is the period of political engagement of the two regimes, the period of military alliance, when the two of them together divide up Eastern Europe. During this period, correspondingly, perhaps this is what we should expect, the Germans catch up to the Soviets. The Soviets kill more slowly than they had in times of peace, and the Germans ramp up very quickly, so that the two of them are killing on the scale of hundreds of thousands in 39 to 41. From 1941 to 1945, when Nazi Germany attacks the Soviet Union, almost all of the killing is carried out by the Germans. Um, the huge majority is being carried out by the Germans on territories beyond Germany. The way that the book progresses is that I consider each of the episodes of mass killing. I've tried to suggest to you why mass killing in general could be expected, should not be surprising, how different episodes might be related uh, in time and in place. What I do in the book is that I consider each individual policy. So it begins in 1933 with the famine in Soviet Ukraine. It begins in 1933 with Stalin's policy of collectivization, the idea of taking farmland from individuals um, and groups and placing it under the control of the state, how this policy led to shortfalls rather than bounty, as was expected, and as the blame for this and the hunger that resulted from this was deliberately distributed in some places rather than others. In particular, um, Stalin created this sort of story according to which Ukrainian nationalists, Polish spies, and so on in Ukraine were responsible for the disaster there, and that the republic as a whole, as a result, should be punished. And so measures were carried out in Soviet Ukraine, like sealing the borders, like making it illegal for peasants to go to cities and beg, like taking away livestock, which if you have any connection with farm, you'll know how important that is, which were applied just to Ukraine. So-called black zones were created, um, communities which were not allowed to trade with the rest of the Soviet Union. Everyone there died. 
So roughly three million people by the end of 1933 were killed. The second major policy, the second major Soviet policy of the 1930s is the policy of the Great Terror, which is related to the disaster of collectivization. After the disaster of collectivization, revolution in the Soviet Union was no longer confident. Revolution in the Soviet Union was fearful, fearful that people might realize what a disaster this had been, both within and without the Soviet Union. The rationale for the largest action of the Great Terror, the Kulak action, a Kulak being a prosperous peasant, um, was that the Japanese would recruit disgruntled Soviet peasants from the Gulag, right? Japanese in East Asia going to invade Siberia and bring along the way with them Ukrainian mainly, deportees who were all the way out in Siberia. The Japanese, by the way, were trying this. It's not as far-fetched as it would sound. Um, But this is the rationale for killing something well over 300,000 human beings. The second group of terror actions in 1937 and 1938 were the national actions about a dozen of the Soviet minority nationalities, the very small minorities. If you take them all together, they total about 1.5% of the population, were targeted for campaigns of ethnic murder and ethnic deportation. The largest of these was the Polish action, in which something like 100,000 Soviet citizens of Polish extraction were, were murdered and a larger number deported. The next chapter, which is chapter four, deals with this moment of encounter, this moment of the joint attack on Poland in 1939 and the joint decapitation of of the Soviet-educated classes. It's an interesting moment because Soviet policy and German policy are strikingly similar. The Soviets are much better at it than the Germans at this point. They're much more efficient. They have much more experience. They keep much better records. Um, But they're both aiming to destroy the Polish nation by removing its top layers. From the Nazi point of view, the top layer is a racial accident which should never exist. From the Soviet point of view, the top layer are the bourgeois and feudal oppressors, but it's the same people, in effect. I mean, there are many cases where the Germans kill one brother and the Soviets kill another because they're, de facto their analyses are the same. This is the moment in 1939 and 1940 when states are removed from the map of Europe, which is incredibly important. It's also the moment when Jews are moved into ghettos. In the next chapter... I try to consider German political economy. Okay. Now, it may seem like at this point I'm just trying to help you know, readers who have had enough of mass murder find their way to sleep. But political economy is incredibly important, as I hope I've already stressed. Political economy is important because in order to understand what the Germans mean to do, you have to know their ideological economics. You have to know that what they think is going to happen is that they're going to invade the Soviet Union. The Soviet state is going to fall apart in two months. Right? They invade in June 1941, and the expectation is not that they'll all be home by Christmas. The expectation is that they will all be home by the end of the summer. Right? There is no winter gear. That's one of the reasons why Stalin didn't believe the intelligence accounts that said that the Germans are about to attack. He said no one would invade the Soviet Union without winter gear. Right? Um, no one should invade the Soviet Union without winter gear, but the Germans did. And they expected to destroy the system within eight weeks. Then they expected that in the winter of 1941, the first winter of the war, after a successful campaign and total domination of the Western Soviet Union, they would starve 30 million Soviet citizens to death. They would starve them as they reoriented the bounty of Ukraine and southern Russia to Western Europe, which from their point of view is where it belonged, and away from Belarus and Russia and the Soviet cities. The result of that, they calculated, would be that 30 million people would starve to death. 
When that was over, they would begin two major campaigns of resettlement. One of themselves into the east, this was called Generalplan Ost. Over years and decades, they would turn um, the Soviet Union into something like the American West. That was Hitler's favorite comparison. And the other was what they called the final solution, the notion that the Jews would be deported somewhere far to the east, probably to Siberia. Heydrich had a fantasy that the Jews should be put in the gulag. Right? So that's what they thought was going to happen. The only way to understand the actual German crimes is to see the relationship between those plans that sort of incredibly bloody ideological political economy and what they, what they met in reality, the forces they, that, they couldn't, that they couldn't control. In short, they do manage to starve some people, about four million, maybe a little bit more, mostly Soviet prisoners of war in starvation camps and besieged Leningrad, where something like a million people are starved. About three million are starved in the, Soviet prisoner of war, in the, in the German prisoner of war camps for Soviets. Um, they do starve some people, but they're forced in general to retreat. It's impractical to starve people when you need them to work for you and you need to occupy them. But above all, the Germans don't destroy the Soviet system. So they pull back. They pull back from a colonial vision, and they pull back to something. They pull back to what I think of as the decolonial mission. They pull back to the idea that the Jews are the greatest enemy. Not only the enemy which is preventing them from winning the war, which of course is the claim that they make, but also the main enemy anyway. The enemy which structures the entire world, and therefore the enemy which, which should be attacked while it can be. So much of the, major, much of the original vision, colonial vision, um, is withdrawn. But a part of it, the final solution, is radically escalated and accelerated. The final solution, instead of being a deportation plan for after a victory, becomes a plan for murder during the war itself. Which brings me to the next four chapters of the book, which deal with the Holocaust. The Holocaust, as I've stressed, happens entirely within the bloodlands. And some of the things which happen with respect to other policies, other groups, earlier periods of time, are very important to see in order to have a chance of understanding how the Holocaust could happen. So, for example, where and how does the Holocaust begin? That is, where and how does an idea of deportation become a practice of actually shooting people where they live, which is what the Holocaust is, by the way. It's shooting people where they live. That's how it starts. That's where half the killing is. The gas chambers are a way of making things easier on the Germans. But if we understand how the Holocaust started and what people are capable of doing, we have to see the Holocaust as being shooting, face-to-face shooting of people not far from where they live. That's what it was. That's what we need to explain. The rest of it are technical modifications. So where does the Holocaust start? It starts precisely in places where the Soviet Union has already been present. It starts precisely in the lands that the Soviet Union itself has invaded in 1939 and 1940. And it starts precisely because of a combination of German intentions to eliminate Jews and the German ability to recruit people by way of political lies about what what they will get in return. So the Holocaust starts in a zone of double occupation. Without that zone of double occupation, it is not clear how the Holocaust would have started. In the event, that is how it started. And where does it proceed? I mentioned earlier that 1939 1940 are the moment of the destruction of states. The Holo- that's, in fact, another definition of the bloodlands, where the state is destroyed. The Holocaust extends eastward from the doubly occupied bits in as far east into the Soviet Union as the Germans proceed. It extends westward into Poland, which the Germans have already destroyed. The Holocaust extends to places where the state has been destroyed, but not further, not further. If you, all of the killing happens where the state has been destroyed, so the prior destruction of the state, a fact which is recorded entirely in national histories, right? The end of the Polish state is something that the Poles want you to remember. 
The end of the Lithuanian state is something the Lithuanians want you to remember. But it mattered most for the Jews, by far for the Jews. If you were a Jew who lived in a place where the state existed, even if it was the Nazi state, even if it was the Nazi state, your chances of surviving were better than one in two. If you were a Jew who lived where the state was destroyed, your chances of surviving were worse than one in 20. It's a difference of an order of magnitude. It's a difference of an order of magnitude. And that has to do with the destruction of the state. So things that happen in the bloodlands, which aren't, so to speak, directed at Jews, are very important then for what happens later to Jews. So the book proceeds through discussions of the Holocaust in Ukraine, in Belarus, and finally in Poland. It closes with three chapters on the fate of Warsaw, on ethnic cleansing after the war, and finally on Stalinist anti-Semitism, which is by way of closing the discussion on interaction. And this is where I'd like to begin to close my own remarks. What is this a book about? As Arne has already stressed, it's not a book that compares. Um, although I spend a lot of time talking about comparison, it's not really what I find interesting. And I think the reason why I don't find it interesting is that it's not something we're really ready for. In order to compare two things, right, apples and oranges, let's say, you have to know what an apple and an orange are. And you have to know that an apple is one thing and an orange is another thing. It seems very simple, right? The Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, we don't know that well. And the reason we don't know them that well is that we don't understand what their interaction has meant. We don't understand where they did their killing and why. I think we're just at the beginning of that. But above all, we can't really separate them. To make a clean comparison, you have to be able to take two things apart. You have to say these things are at least analytically distinct. I don't think that's really possible. I think the two of them, and this is where the book really moves, the two of them interact. At the very least in the question of mass killing, the two of them interact, at least to the point where you can't really explain the actions of one without the presence of the other. Now, I'm not claiming, as I said before, that they always interact. That would be absurd. I'm not claiming that Hitler's decisions can always be explained by reference to some obscure policy by a Soviet bureaucrat in Rostov on Don or something. Or the contrary, I'm not, I'm not claiming that what Molotov does can somehow always be explained by something that somebody does in Munich. No. Sometimes they interact and sometimes they don't, and it's an empirical question. For example, um, it is not really the case that Hitler's anti-Semitism his idea that all Jews were Bolsheviks and all Bolsheviks were Jews had something to do with experience. That was an axiom. That was an axiom. Interestingly, insofar as Hitler had experience with the Soviet Union, he moved away from those ideas without ever saying he was, right? But as he actually engaged the Soviet Union and killed its Jews, he then started to say things like, you know, I think Stalin has actually done away with all of his Jewish advisors. Or, you know, I think the Soviet Union is a Russian imperial state. Or Stalin, um, he's a beast, but he's a beast of grand stature. When he actually engages the Soviet Union, he changes his interpretation of it completely. So interaction in this case actually undermines, at least a little bit, the ideology which was, which was unfortunately so decisive for the fate of the Jews. Or Stalin's campaigns of the 1930s, the collectivization that killed 3 million people in Ukraine, about 7 million people overall, the Great Terror, which kills about a million people. These are indeed, in some sense, reactions to a feeling of threat. But it's not really a feeling of threat from Germany. It was, what Stalin was above all afraid of was a Japanese-Polish encirclement. The Japanese were much more important than the Germans in Stalin's calculations, um, probably reasonably so. 
He was afraid of a Japanese-Polish encirclement, which might or might not include the Germans. That's what he was afraid of. That was what, insofar as you can justify the terror as a result of some kind of interaction, it was an interaction with Tokyo and Warsaw more than it was an interaction with Berlin. So you can't take everything that happens on one side and blame it on the other. Nevertheless, there are forms of interaction that are important. So, for example, Soviet modernization and Nazi demodernization. That is a theoretical conversation. When Goering in Nazi Germany um, establishes a four-year plan to control the Soviet Union, that is, in fact, a response to the five-year plan to modernize the Soviet Union, literally a response. So the five-year plan builds up the cities. The four-year plan plans on destroying those cities. Right? The five-year plan builds up industry. The four-year plan plans on getting rid of that industry and restoring farmland, and so on and so on. The main interaction, of course, is the military alliance of 1939, very important interaction. Everything that follows from the Second World War follows from this, right? Without this, we don't know how the Second World War would begin or how it would follow. And of course, the Soviet-German War of 1941 is also an interaction. Um, it's an interaction where certain Soviet and German crimes nevertheless uh, have a relationship to each other. Take the prisoners of war. If it weren't for the Holocaust, the worst Nazi war crime would have been the deliberate starvation of Soviet prisoners of war, more than three million human beings. Um, this is a crime on an enormous scale, um, hardly remembered at all. It happens in part because this, um, Stalin criminalizes retreat, um, because Stalin makes it clear that anyone who retreats is going to be treated as, as outside the bounds of Soviet society. Therefore, people prefer to be taken prisoner. There's a kind of interaction there. Partisan warfare. The Soviets deliberately carry out partisan warfare in places where they know the result is going to be that, that, um, that peasants are going to be killed in large numbers. Or the Warsaw Uprising, obviously a German crime to kill more than 100,000 Polish civilians in 1944 during the uprising. Nevertheless, the fact that the Soviets encourage the city to rise up and then don't help, in fact prevent help from arriving, is part of the story. So even in cases where it's quite clear who the major criminal is, you can't really tell the story adequately as history without some kind of interaction. Or to think an example a little bit beyond my story, the gulag. When is the gulag truly deadly? The gulag is truly deadly for, for about two years, 1942, 1943, a bit into 1944. During those years, the death rates in the gulag were about half. The rest of the time, it was less than 10%. Why is that? Well, of course, in part, it's because millions of people were sentenced to the gulag by the Soviet system. But it's also in part because Germany attacked the Soviet Union, right? In conditions of wartime, the gulag is at the very bottom of the list of priorities for supplies, and so people die of starvation, malnutrition, and disease. Can you explain that just with the Soviet system? No, you have to have some reference to what the Germans are doing as well. Now, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to make the case that this book, insofar as it's about the two systems, is about their inter interaction rather than about comparison. But I don't, want you to give, I don't want to give you the wrong idea about comparison. And I certainly don't want you to think it's something that we academics can or should shy away from. On the contrary, it's very difficult to see some important features of these systems without comparing. Take the history of the Holocaust. The history of the Holocaust is in large measure a failure of the Germans to deport. You see that much better 
when you see how well the Soviet Union could deport. You understand Hitler's frustrations much more clearly when you see that Hitler was watching the Soviet Union deport very efficiently. The Germans fail to starve 30 million people to death. They can't carry out a planned starvation, really. It's easier to understand that when you have seen a planned starvation carried out, as in the Soviet Union. But more than that, if we, seriously, if we took seriously the idea that we can't compare, that there was a taboo on comparison, we would, become our, we would become our own mind police. Just to give you an example, earlier in this lecture, and at least you know, 40% of you were paying attention because I'm watching, I said that 20,000 people were in the German camps while a million people were in the Soviet camps. That's a comparison, right? What are you going to do with that? Are you going to forget it? Are you going to make yourself forget it? What is the technique that you use to make yourself forget it, right? How do you keep these things out of the rest of your analysis? I would suggest that it's impossible, that when we look at these things, there are natural comparisons and they help us to understand perspective. But more importantly than this, and now we're getting to the nub of the issue, since both regimes were present on both territories, everybody who lived on, since both regimes were present on a single territory, everybody who lived on this territory, so long as they were alive anyway, had experience and anticipation of both, everyone. Jews, Ukrainians, Belarusians, Poles, Russians, Lithuanians, Latvians, doesn't matter. Everyone had experience of both. Everyone was making comparisons. If you were a Jew in Warsaw in September of 1939, and the Wehrmacht is coming, you don't say to yourself, I am imposing a ban on comparison, which is going to prevent me from thinking about whether or not I should flee the city. Right? I have yet to find that in the record anyway. In the record, you find Jews who stay in Warsaw, Jews who decide to flee eastward to the Soviet Union, but you don't find any Jews who say, I can't think about comparison because it should be a taboo issue, right? That would be grotesque and absurd given the actual historical situation. It's true of everyone. Belarusian families during the anti-partisan campaigns, where one son was seized by the Germans to fight in the police and the other son was seized by the Soviet partisans, where on both sides there was a loyalty test which said you had to kill your own family if necessary, those people naturally compared. Soviet prisoners of war who were from Ukraine, who found themselves in German starvation camps in 1941, naturally compared their experience to surviving 1933. How could they not? How could they not do that? That would be absurd. So the point is that comparison is not something that we impose from outside. The taboo on comparison is something that we impose from the outside. But comparison is inside this history. It's inside these sources. To demand from the people who experience both systems that they not compare is to extract forcibly all of the humanity out of what actually happened. Now, I understand, this is going to be the last point that I make, I understand that there's a reason why people insist on taboos. Taboos are about trying to preserve some element of a social structure. I understand that the reason of trying to, for trying to impose a taboo on these comparisons is that there's a wish to preserve the special status of, of the Holocaust. Um, I understand that there's a view that says that if we actually knew the history, that would be bad for us. I'm against that view. I'm, I'm an old-fashioned free speecher in some sense, but also I think the consequences are not what we think they're going to be. The idea that good history is bad for us and bad history is good for us is one that I want to oppose. I think that bad history is bad for us and good history is good for us. 
I think this way of understanding history, of being unconcerned about the taboos, which are artifacts of our own moment, um, helps us to understand very crucial issues about, of, of this history, whether it's colonization or collaboration. It also helps us to understand the Holocaust. This will be my subject next time. Um, it allows us to see the Holocaust where it happened. It allows us to see the victims for who they are and not just as the Nazis saw them, which is the chief way that we see them. Um, it allows us to try to explain the Holocaust against its historical setting. Again, this is my topic next time. And it also allows us, if we want to, and as I stress, this is not really my interest, and I spent about a sentence on this in the book, if we want to, it allows us to compare the Holocaust to other crimes. Um, it allows us to make the case that the Holocaust was, in fact, unprecedented. In fact, this book, if anyone reads it this far, I think makes the most radical case for the unprecedented nature of the Holocaust ever made in three ways. The first is this book allows us to avoid the hegemonic minimization. Okay, hegemonic minimization. What do I mean there? I can give that in two syllables. Auschwitz. The association of the Holocaust with Auschwitz is the hegemonic minimization of the Holocaust. The Holocaust took place at Auschwitz. Auschwitz was a terrible facility which took a million lives. But that is one-sixth of the Holocaust. Five-sixths of the Holocaust took place elsewhere, mostly in the East. Why is Auschwitz a comfortable synonym for most people most of the time for the Holocaust? I'll tell you why. The idea that Germans didn't know about the Holocaust is absurd. German soldiers and policemen and thousands of others, secretaries, administrators, you name it, saw the Holocaust happen in the East, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands probably. Everyone in Germany knew about the Holocaust while it was happening because the Holocaust was, above all, mass face-to-face shooting that took place in public in a German empire, led or carried out by Germans. Germans knew when it was happening. If you say the Holocaust is Auschwitz, then you can say, well, I didn't know about Auschwitz, therefore I didn't know about the Holocaust, right? Which is the German myth that continues to this day. The question is falsely phrased as, did they know about Auschwitz or not? That's not the right question. They might or might not known about Auschwitz, but they certainly knew about the Holocaust. And if you know what the Holocaust was, where it started, how it started, then, then this question resolves itself. Auschwitz is also very convenient for the Soviets. If the Holocaust is Auschwitz and Auschwitz is the Holocaust, then you can avoid such problems as the fact that the Holocaust began on territories that the Soviets occupied, that a very large number, in fact, most of the perpetrators of the Holocaust were Soviet citizens, that the Germans were able to draw collaborators from Soviet territory everywhere where they went, everywhere, right? Those are just basic facts that become immediately obvious when you look at the territory. But they're not comfortable facts for Soviet history or today for Russian history. So if you put the, if you put the Holocaust in Auschwitz, you're allowing yourself a very comfortable minimization. The same goes for all of us, for all humans, Insofar as we think of Auschwitz as a kind of mechanized factory, or we think of Auschwitz as an endpoint of modernity, it's not a real place in time where real humans did, other, did real things to other real humans. It distances all of us. Right? So if you look at history this way, if you look at the territory and all of its population, you find a Holocaust that can't be minimized. That's the first thing. The second thing you find is that the Holocaust killed more people than any other policy. Now, I can say that on the basis of my research because in my research, all the other policies are present. The standard view in the history of the Holocaust, I stress, has always been that the Germans killed fewer people than the Soviets, 
but the Germans killed according to race. Only half of that is true. The Germans killed more people than the Soviets. The Holocaust itself killed more people than all of the Soviet killing policies put together. But you can only say that if you put all the Soviet policies together, right? which I've done. And then the final point, the third way, is that the Holocaust is, in fact, the only attempt to try to remove a large people from the face of the earth. There I agree. But in adding those two other elements, I'm making it the strongest possible case, I think, for the unprecedented character of the Holocaust. So good history, I think, is better for us. I think transnational history is better for us. Um, And I think the risk is worthwhile. But this is not what the book is fundamentally about. And here I'd like to return to a point that Arne very kindly made at the beginning. It's important for us to be able to explain these policies. It's important for us to have our own ways of interpreting. It's important for us to be able to think through the methods and the taboos that dominate in our own time. But it's also important to be able to write about history as human history. It's important to know what the numbers are. And I try very hard to get them right. But a big number, a number like 14 million, a number where I began, any big number, 6 million, 3 million, even 20,000, any big number is very difficult to grasp. We have to be able, when we read and we do history, to think of 14 million as 14 million times one where 14 million means one over and over and over and over again. And where that one is not just a generic arithmetic unit, where that one is not a unit at all, but where that one is a life. In other words, we have to be able to think about numbers in such a way that the difference between zero and one is an infinity. Um, History is a humanity. History is about that particular infinity. History is about each life. History is about life. It's not about death. Um, And so in that spirit, what I'd like to do at the very, very end is return to where I began and give you the names of the three people I discussed at the beginning. Because, of course, these aren't just three stories. Each of the three people had a name, just like there aren't just 14 million stories. There are 14 million names. The name of the Ukrainian who dug his own grave was Petro Veldi, the name of the Pole who kept a diary was Adam Solsky. And the name of the young Jewish woman who left a note for her father, her mother, on the wall of the synagogue was Dobche Kagan. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Tim. It's a powerful, very sophisticated lecture. Certainly made a great impression on me and I'm I'm sure on everyone in this room. We have um, time for a few questions at the end. I wanted to start off by asking you one about war and the, the impact of war on these two sides, on the Soviet and on the German side. Because you made the point which you make even more forceful in the book, it's a very sophisticated point, that on the Soviet side, the advent of war, if not put an end to the killing, reduced the numbers very, very dramatically. Well, on the German side, as we all know, this is what opened the floodgates for various projects, and first and foremost, of course, for the mass uh, extermination of, of European Jewry. So I wonder if we could take you a little bit further on that 
parallel, because a parallel indeed it is, although inverted. Is there something with regard to the ideologies in themselves that lead to this result? I mean, does this go beyond contingencies of war? Does it go beyond the political calculus that are made at that particular moment? Is there something with these two projects that point in the direction of how they behave when warfare comes? Yes, I think that's very much the case. In, 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 both, in both examples, you can point to ideology and then you can ask what happens when ideology goes, goes wrong, when it, in implementation it doesn't bring what you expect. The Soviets are starting from a revolution, as you know better than I. They're starting from a revolution which is not the revolution they expected. Um, the revolution the Soviets expect is a world revolution, or at least a European revolution. Their revolution in 1917 is supposed to set off um, the spark in the proverbial powder keg. It's supposed to set off a European revolution. That doesn't happen. Um, the Soviets are left with their own revolution, and then they have a kind of problem to solve, which Lenin's successors, heirs, spend the 1920s discussing. If the Germans and the English, um, if those working classes aren't going to rush to aid us in our development towards socialism, how are we going to aid ourselves towards socialism? And the answer that Stalin comes up with, or the way that Stalin in an unguarded moment talks about his answer, is internal colonialism. Right? So Stalin says, unlike the British, unlike the French, we don't have vast world empires which we can exploit, so we have no choice but to exploit ourselves. Now, this comes straight from the ideology because the ideology says there is a path of history. You go from feudalism to capitalism to socialism. Cap feudalism looks a certain way. Capitalism looks a certain way. Socialism looks a certain way. We have no choice but to get to something that looks like capitalism in order to get to socialism. How do we do it? And so the answer is internal colonization, collectivization. What does that mean? It means that in practice, the class war is an internal war. Right? Collectivization is defined explicitly as a war against the peasants or a war against the kulaks. That word war you know, in the 1930s, it's not used with the Germans. Stalin is always hopeful that he's going to find peace with the Germans. Um, it's not used against the Germans until, you know, until summer of 1941. But it's used against the peasants all the time. So there is a kind of war which is going on, but it's internal. Um, and then when that fails, it leads, it leads to the terror. Whereas if you start from Hitler's ideological priors... If you start from Hitler's fundamental um, beginning point, you see the world as a, as a, as a how, does, how does he put it, a finite space uh, over which races compete. There's only so much territory. Territory matters because it's fertile. Uh, we all belong to races. What races do is they compete for this limited supply of, of, of territory for what he calls, for what he calls Lebensraum. So naturally, the, the, the superior races um, need to have more territory than the inferior races. What Germany is going to do is Germany is going to expand to this, its natural reach by, by, by conquering the East. Now, that comes from ideology because the, the, the idea is that Germans are have been artificially compressed, chiefly by the Jews, a bit by bad luck, into this little patch of territory, when in fact they, they should, by virtue of their strength, which is axiomatic, their superiority, which for Hitler is axiomatic, they should have much, much more territory. Then there's a practical issue, right? Because you can't just, and Hitler understands this, you can't just come to power in 1933 and declare a race war. You have to prepare, which they do. I mean, all, the, all of these things, which I just briefly mentioned, 
um, maintaining the SS from the 20s into the 30s, um, using the SS to penetrate the police forces, creating hybrid organizations which are half state, half racial, um, which involve police, but which are mainly about carrying out terror abroad, um, building up the Wehrmacht to these improbable dimensions. All of this is preparation for this racial campaign which is going to be in the future. So yeah, I mean, this difference, killing at home, killing abroad, arises from different ideologies as applied to the same point in history. Thanks. Other questions? I'll, I'll take it. I'll take a co- couple of them. Let me start with the gentleman back there. You can wait for the microphone. Please be brief, we, because we don't have all that much time for discussion at the end here now. So take two together. You there and someone upstairs? Yes, the gentleman over there. Start with you two. Please. Can I I suggest that you also need to extend this notion of the bloodlands back in time and to the future? Because there's a similar conflict in the final stages of the First World War and during the Russian Civil War in exactly the same area. There is conflict between the Poles and the Russians in that area. That area is, that's where Poland is destroyed in the 18th century. It's where the new states after Versailles are created. It's also now where the European Union and Mr. Putin are competing for the same territory. It hasn't finished. Thank you. Upstairs. Yes, please. Okay. Uh, In your remarks, you said that both uh, Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union were driven by an economic imperative, which meant they focused on the Ukraine. I think I understand why it was that Nazi Germany was focused on the Ukraine, but I can't really uh, fully understand how it was that the Ukraine was essential for the modernization of the Soviet Union. Could you explain a bit more about that? Thanks. Well, I'll take those to Tim. Yeah. So the, the, the first question is about the, the origins and the heritage of this, this territory that I call the Bloodlands. It's, 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 it's a very good point, and it's, it's one that I try to make in the first chapter of the book, that there are certain precedents in the 19th century and in the Great War. Um, It's quite right that this territory, since the partitions of Poland from 1772 to 1795, which you mentioned, um, all the way through to the 20th century, is never governed by a coherent state unit. Right? And that seems to be rather important. There, there was never, the, Poland was not a centralized state in the modern sense. So you could push the point back even further into the past if you wanted to. There was no coherent state. Um, and the second thing, which in a way predates all of this, and which is, so to speak, objective, is that there is a myth in the reality of Ukraine as a breadbasket. I'm foreshadowing a bit my answer to the second question. Um, that is something which is known about uh, by everyone who's interested in this part of the world forever. We don't think about it quite so much today, um, although perhaps we should uh, because of global warming. I mean, Ukraine, if you look at the charts of grain exports, Ukraine, although it looks like a mess in every other respect, you know, it, it's U.S., Canada, Brazil, and then who's next? You know, not Russia, Ukraine. It's quite extraordinary. In any event, um, there are these precedents, and I think an important one, probably the most important one, uh, is, is the uh, the heritage of German colonialism in the Great War. So the Germans have this idea, which they actually carry out, of creating a chain of, of puppet states, the, the Baltic states, Belarus, Ukraine. They, they do that. 
I mean, the, the, the Bolshevik Revolution, this, historic, this world historical event, that's a German provocation. I mean, they, they send this guy, you know, Ulyanov, of whom nobody has heard, in a train, and all of a sudden there's this revolution. That was a German idea, right? I mean, Zimmerman had a couple of ideas. One of them was to get the Mexicans to fight the Americans. That didn't, I'm talking about the German foreign minister. Another was to get Russian immigrants to start a revolution. One of those two, both of those ideas were equally crazy, and one of them worked, um, and that was the idea to, to the Russian Revolution. As a result of the Russian Revolution, the Germans were able to move very quickly, um, very deep into Eastern Europe. Um, they were able to sign peace treaties with the new Russian state, as well as with independent or quasi-independent Ukrainian, Belarusian, Baltic states. And by 1918, they've won the war in the East. They've won the war in the East, um, and, and the, you know, which is one reason why the the end of the war is so confusing for Germans. They never lost in the East. They won. They won. All those soldiers marching back are marching back from, from victory as far as they know. You know. They don't know about the defeat in France. So, um, but the point is that there was a German empire in the East which existed and which didn't last long enough to fail. <laughs> it only lasted for a few months. The Germans had this idea that they were going to get millions and millions and millions of tons of grain from Ukraine. That didn't actually work in 1918 because of political instability, uh, communist sabotage, uh, nationalist and anarchist bandits, it's people with a general fetish for destroying the rail lines, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It didn't work. Um, uh, but, it, it, but, it, but Hitler and others could think that it could work. And then what happens in the Second War is sort of strikingly similar to what happens in the First War. But the precedent of an, of an empire in the East is, is very important. So I take your point there. As to the bloodlines continuing today, I mean, a, a, lot, a lot of things have changed. Um, but there are a couple of things that have remained the same, One of, or, or, or have renewed importance. One of them I already mentioned, which is that with whatever you want to call it, um, climate change, uh, major powers in the world are much more concerned with food supply than they were 20 years ago. So China, for example, just tried to buy 9% of all the arable soil in Ukraine. That's a pretty big figure, 9%. I say tried to because trying to buy anything in Ukraine, even if you're China, is tough. Um, which is why, incidentally, in the, in the recent troubles in Ukraine, you know, when, 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 um, when Yanukovych goes to China, the, what do the Chinese tell him? Make a deal with Russia? No, they say, make a deal with the EU, because if, if Ukraine makes a deal with the EU, then maybe there's the rule of law in Ukraine, and then maybe the Chinese can buy up all the land. <laughs> um, but, but no, that, that's, that actually happened. Um, uh, but, to, 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 but just to make a little footnote on your point about how this contest continues, here's what I find interesting. The European Union has enlarged to post-Soviet territory in the Baltic states. But where the European Union has not reached is in the so, into Soviet territory as of the founding of the Soviet Union. Right? So all of the territories which were subject to these policies that I described today, these policies of the 1930s, the collectivization of the first five-year plan, the Great Terror, not an inch of that territory has been admitted to the European Union. That is a real line. Not the Soviet border of 45, but that, 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 that Soviet territory which was subject to these policies in the 1930s. So far, that line has not been crossed. Right? Ukraine would be the first if it were to happen, but so far it hasn't been crossed. And that confirms to me not so much that there's a simple continuity, but that what happened in the 1930s remains very weighty. On, on, so on the Soviet model, it's not, it's not, very, it's not very complicated. The, 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 in Moscow, they understood the same things we understand. Um, Volga, Russia, and Ukraine are the most fertile territories. In order to modernize, you have to be able to extract surplus. And they think they can get the biggest surplus from Ukraine. Their failure to get a surplus from Ukraine is what leads to the disaster that follows.
may have two more questions. Maybe I should start upstairs this time. There's anyone? Yes, right at the front over there. Young lady right at the, right at the front. Please. Um, thank you. Um, about um, Ukraine going to China and China telling, oh, no, wait. get a deal with the EU. <laughs> I'm a bit confused because I was... I got a sense that when Yanukovych went to China, well, actually, because IMF was not giving, well, the money on their conditions, so it was the easiest way to get the money that would be China, if not Russia. So as far as I understood is that actually China didn't want to um, compromise Russia, which is a big regional ally. I don't know. If, if, how, how do you know that it is the EU... Uh, that China would prefer Ukraine to get Slightly on the side of the talk, but I understand where the question is coming from. Um, <laughs> okay. Let, let, okay. You may answer that in a little bit, Tim. Um, anyone down here? Yeah, right at the end. Yes, please. Hi. I'd just like your thoughts on um, the totalitarian paradigm popularized in the 1950s um, as a result, I mean, based on your book and uh, how does is it? Would you consider it defunct now? And especially in light of comparative history and transnational history. This is the danger of trying to be interesting in Q&A. If somebody asks a question, you say something interesting off the topic, and then like, you get questions about your answers instead of about the talk itself. I actually can't tell you how I know that, but it is, I'm pretty sure it is the case. Um, <laughs> um, uh, uh, yeah. We're not going to make the, this the, into the, a seminar the, methodology. Yeah. No, I mean, as Arnie can tell you, the Chinese, the Chinese are much, much more sophisticated in general than we credit them for being. Um, the larger point, though, that I would stress, if we can retain something from this discussion, is the interest in Ukrainian soil. I mean, five, ten years ago, if I had said, you know, the, the, fertile, the fertile Ukrainian breadbasket, everybody would have laughed. Now only about half the audience laughs because we're moving into a different historical moment. Whether we realize or not, most of our leaders realize this. And there are very intense calculations being made over what parts of the planet need to be controlled, which is something, you know, totally normal for Western history up until the Green Revolution of the 1950s and 60s. And we are all children all of us, really, I mean, even those who were born before the 50s and 60s, we were all children of this green revolution. We're children of irrigation, fertilization, hybridization, these things that make us who we are, that make food a non-issue in our lives. That's, that's, the, big, that's the big world historical change between our history, our experience, and the history that I'm trying to talk about. That's, and that's the thing which, because we have no experience with it, when it comes back, we're going to say, oh, this is new, this never happened before. How can we possibly deal with this? When, in fact, food scarcity is the main, and the distribution of hunger is the mainstream of you know, Western history. That's the thing which I would like to sort of retain from this conversation about you know, China and the EU and Russia, however that might be. We're moving back, I think, into a world which is more like this world um, than, we would, than we would like to think. On totalitarianism, um, I mean, if, you, if you've read the book, you know that it's a I mean, in some measure, it's a kind of, you know, bittersweet love letter to Hannah Arendt. I mean, I am, I am a, I'm, a, I'm a tremendous admirer of Hannah Arendt. Um, she repays rereading um, over and over again. Um, she knew lots of things at the time, which people, I mean, in the time of she wrote Origins, 
1947. She knew lots of things at the time that people have subsequently managed to forget. For example, the Polish terror. She makes multiple references to the Polish action of the Great Terror, um, which in the meantime, I mean, so she knew about it in 1948, in the, and then it was forgotten for 60 years. <laughs> Right? Rather short, but somehow Arendt knew about it. Um, she makes repeated and competent references to the famine in Ukraine of 1933, which she refers to as the beginning of the history of alienation. And I think quite correctly. I mean, I think there are a few things that are more alienating than being put in a position where you either have to, you either have to um, eat your neighbor or not. I mean, there are a few things which are more dramatic um, in the human relationships than that. I think she was co- absolutely right about that. So I'm an admirer of Arendt. I think there are some things in the, in the analysis which are certainly right. I mean, I think her... Her, 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 her unemotional indifference to taboo is, is certainly very important. Her focus in that book and also in, 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 in contemporary works on the relationship with the individual and the state is very important. Her understanding that individual rights is a hollow concept without a relationship to the state, I think is very more important than even she realized for the history of the Holocaust. Because basically everybody who's killed in the Holocaust is first stripped of their relationship to a state. The main way that that's achieved, as I try to stress in the talk, is not by a kind of slow, step-by-step German way, Nuremberg laws and so on. The main way that's achieved is by actually destroying the state. That's the way you create stateless people and stateless Jews wholesale. You get rid of the state. And then when that's done, the Jews in general are killed. So there are parts of the analysis which I think are are extremely important. I think her general idea, um, the part which people remember less about imperialism, is certainly worth contemplating. Um, Somehow Hitler was able to think his way uh, into something um, which many people in Europe and America find so alien it's difficult for them to contemplate. I mean, even including racists. He was able to think his way into a position of seeing East Europeans as being like Africans, right? Um, Just how that happened, you know, is a matter of much dispute. But surely Arendt is right that it had something to do with the European experience in Africa in the late 19th century and early 20th century. Um, That's a part of the analysis which I think is certainly worth considering and thinking about. Um, The the totalitarianism thesis in and of itself I have a couple of problems with. The, The first problem is that if it were true then the way that killing would, pre- would proceed would be from the center outwards, right? In a totalitarian system, you'd expect the killing to start in the, in the capital, in the metropolitan areas, and, the, and then proceed to the peripheries. In fact, the opposite is the case, empirically. The, the killing in the Soviet Union is on the Soviet periphery, the western part of which is, is my subject. The German killing is beyond Germany, um, almost all of it until the very, very end. I mean, the last weeks of the war, there's some killing inside Germany itself. Um, there's the killing of the handicapped, of course, which is significant. But for the most part, the killing is beyond. It's in an imperial no-man's land. That's not what you would expect if your theory were right. And the, the, the second thing, um, which the second major disagreement I have is with the process. You know, it's, with, it's with her whole phenomenological understanding of alienation. Um, uh, she believes that the way that the killing proceeds is that you and I are first alienated from society in general. We are concentrated metaphorically and then really in places like camps. And then we are exterminated. Then we are eliminated. In fact, um, and then she goes so far as to say very you know, overstated Hannah Arendt type things like the people in the camps were dead even before they were killed. Now, we know that that, you know that that statement falsifies the whole claim because people survived the camps, they write memoirs about the camps, and that's how we know about the camps, right? Um, the camps may have changed them in certain fundamental ways, but they were still alive. They were still human. In fact, most of the killing happens without concentration. 
Um, most, of the, most of the killing happens without people being concentrated first. So that whole sequence, the alienation, the concentration, the elimination, which dominates the discussion, it's in Arendt and it's also in Raul Hilberg. That whole sequence turns out not to be correct. That's my, that's my second major disagreement. But I would, I would close just by, by, just by emphasizing my respect for her. Um, I don't think we would be where we are um, in these, you know, insofar as we try to speak theoretically and generally about these issues without, without Hannah Arendt. Tim will be signing uh, copies of his book up here uh, after the event ends. The book is for sale outside. Uh, and you can pick up a, a copy there and then bring it back in here to get it signed. Uh, the, the last lecture in this series is, is, is coming up. Tim already announced uh, the topic on, on the Holocaust. Uh, there are also quite a number of other discussions, seminars, talks that are going on on issues that deal both with contemporary and historical international affairs uh, directed by LSE Ideas. I would strongly encourage you to look at the website and see what is coming up there. Among them, a discussion about power shifts and the rise of China, which some of you would be interested in. But for now, it it remains for me to thank you again, Tim, for an extremely powerful lecture that will live with us for a very long time to come, even after this event is over. Thank you very much.